0: This interview is one in a series recorded by the Charlie Waller Memorial Trust as part of a Health Education England funded programme to transform outcomes for children and young people with extra vulnerability to mental health difficulties. The series includes interviews with a range of experts who each have specialist knowledge on the needs and experiences of a particular vulnerable group. This is an interview with Dr Alan Cooklin.
1: So uh, welcome to the latest in our series of podcasts looking at the issues facing different young people and different groups of young people. I'm here today with Dr Alan Cooklin. I'll let Alan introduce himself a little bit and talk a little bit about his history and the work that he does, especially around young people who are affected by mental health issues by, um, of others within the family.
0: Okay, so I'm called a family psychiatrist and for 30 odd years I worked in the NHS under that title, originally qualified in general psychiatry and then in child and adolescent psychiatry. And my passion was the interest in how family members affected each other and how they responded to that. And so we developed the Marlborough Family Service, which which I was director of until 1995, based on those principles and we developed a very vibrant uh, community mental health service in Westminster which continued actually until uh, about three or four years ago when the team now moved to the Anna Freud Centre because they felt they couldn't work under the current uh, Westminster NHS management and now they're developing very strongly within the Anna Freud Centre. So my interest was in families and in family relationships and how mental health and mental illness impacted mutually on family relationships and vice versa. And we developed a training, a number of university-based trainings on fa- in family therapy, both at the Institute of Family Therapy and at the Marlborough. And in the course of that, we set up a project in Camden and Islington called The Family Project. And in the course of that, we worked with many families and notice that in the mental health services, nobody addressed the needs of the children. That was absolutely almost not thought of. So when they talked in mental health circles about family, they didn't mean family. They meant adult relatives, not the most vulnerable people and the most needy people in the family. So we started working in when we trained staff, particularly frontline nurses, psychologists, OTs, so on and so forth, social workers we trained them to work with whole families, which included the children of all ages. And then I went to a presentation up in Merseyside called Keeping the Family in Mind, a big presentation with a lot of Department of Health contributions and and in that a group of young carers presented. Um, I hadn't seen a group of young carers present before that, to be honest, this was in about 1999. And they talked with passion about They were nervous, but then they became angry. They talked with passion about how nobody had helped them. Uh, From age eight, some of them had been managing their parents' medication, either with their uh, problems of coping with their parents or with the effect on their own mental health, particularly, which they always hid. They were excellent at hiding it. And I'll come back to that. And they said with great anger that the worst thing of all was when the mental health services got involved because they came in like the SAS when there's a section, wham, bam, carted the parent off. They were pushed into another room and nobody explained to them what was really going on. And worst of all, they said, nobody asked their opinion of what they knew about the parent, because often they had key information about the mental illness of the parent. What made it better? What made it worse? which nobody was interested in asking them. And we've had since good evidence that the information and knowledge of those children about their parents was sometimes more accurate than the mental health professionals who subsequently assessed them. And I've got a good, I can give you an example of that if you want. So we got very interested in this and we decided because we'd been running multifamily groups for families, that we would run a special multifamily group called What Should We Tell the Children workshops? Where we would get parents who had a mental illness and their spouses and the family and the children and help the parents talk to the children. And that started in the year 2000 and has been running for the last 18 years. And the name changed very quickly to Kids Time Because the children said, We don't like that term. How about this? We want our time. We'll call it kids' time. And that was how the term kids' time came up. So that was the story of how we got into this business. And I have to say, it's been an incredible journey where we've learned an enormous amount both about young people's mental health, stuff that isn't written about, and about how they manage parental mental illness, and about their courage and resilience. So that's what I'm hoping to talk to you a bit about today.
1: Great. Thanks, Alan. It's certainly really interesting to hear how much certainly your experiences were impacted by those young people that you first that you first heard from and their experiences and how they felt about it. And I think certainly that's that's something that I think um, certainly within schools, I think in busy environments like that those things can certainly sort of be be sort of sometimes forgotten so i think it's really important for us to hear that and yeah that that's really really good um in terms of sort of prevalence and and numbers alan how what what do you think we're sort of looking at well
0: as you know the, the the numbers issue is a complete mess the department for education uh recommissioned um uh professor aldridge joe aldridge um i think do a study and I'm not even sure if it got published. I I know they embargoed it for a long time. But even so, the original figure of 165 young carers uh, was, I think, updated to 190 plus thousand, which is completely irrelevant in terms of this group of children. The official international term "COPME," children of parents with mental illness, is a horrible term but we don't have anything else for it. And the estimates by Sky in, I think, 2008 were that there were 2 million children living with parents with mental illness. We did a a study with um, uh, Ernst and Young recently, which suggested it's probably closer to 3.4 million, which is a lot of children in the United Kingdom. And the All the aggregated figures suggest that about 70% of those children will suffer some level of mental health disturbance of their own. And this does not mean we're talking about necessarily genetic transmission. We're talking about obviously a total compound of uh, inherent strengths and weaknesses, uh, environmental stresses, current family pattern, past family pattern, and their own resilience so we're talking about a whole range of factors that not only summate but drive each other that enhance each other so we know that there are about 70 percent and in our experience and we think we've got good evidence that the majority of that is totally preventable and relatively cheaply preventable if only society got together to respond to it. One of the issues which is not been touched, in my view, in any, either the Heads Together campaign or uh, anywhere else, is that these children are often not on the radar. And the reason they're not on the radar is that they have become extremely adept at hiding in order to protect the family out of loyalty, both to the ill parent and to the family as a whole. So it's not it's and I, I've raised this with a number of the mental health charities and they're not really interested uh, because it's a tick. It's a tricky subject.
1: So, Alan, it would be good to hear. Do, do we feel that this is a real sort of hidden issue almost with maybe young people you know, coming under the radar that, that are being missed? There's
0: absolutely no doubt. For example, when Luciana Berger was the shadow minister for mental health, she asked a question in the House for us of the Department for Education about what figures they kept about children whose parents had mental illness. And they said, I have to say with some pride, we keep no figures whatsoever. Now, I think it's very difficult to fully understand this, but I think this is a political issue about the fear of being seen to be parent critics. The parents we work with do not perceive it in that way at all. They're delighted that we help them as parents rather than as patients. They're delighted that we help them with their children. But I think politically it's seen as much more dangerous to talk about the effect of parents on children, partly because uh, in a conservative country, uh, the idea is that parents know best, which is tricky when they don't.
1: <laughs> certainly, certainly. Yeah. And I think, and again, I think that's really important for us to acknowledge sometimes. And, you know, it's important to acknowledge these things and these sort of barriers, because that's what helps us, I guess, work around them and be able to overcome them
0: and sort of look beyond them. So let's let's look a little bit of why it why it matters
1: yes definitely and it's it would be good i think that's certainly something that that listeners and like i say those within those sort of universal services will will be interested to if hear. you
0: talk to these children which we have and, and, and we've looked at that we belong to a, a social network called Basecamp, which is cockney international around the world and many countries have done much more on this than the uk uh, many of countries like australia have dedicated cockney services uh, in canada another country in Scandinavia they've addressed this issue they're not so frightened uh, of addressing it um what all the children have said is that there are three things that they need the most important of all is that they need to understand a proper explanation and not just a kind of patronizing dismissive explanation like you know It's a chemical imbalance in the brain, which doesn't mean anything to a child and doesn't mean anything to me either, actually. But um, an explanation of what the process is, what's happening to their parent and why, what makes it better and worse. They want a proper explanation. And it's been amazing how quite young children can take in quite sophisticated ideas about this. The second thing they want is they want somebody to talk to. And I don't mean a counselor or therapist. And of course, as you can understand, very often a counselor or therapist is an anathema because that symbolizes going down the same road as their parents. They may well benefit from some therapeutic help later. But the worst thing of all is to offer that as the first uh, your first intervention, because it is immediately in the child's mind is labeling them uh, as in that domain of mental illness. So they want an advocate or a person could be an uncle or an aunt it could be an adult friend it could be a teacher it could be a school nurse and if there weren't uh, only weren't more school nurses that would be the ideal because they're perceived as neutral in school and they're also perceived as not gossiping because as you know in school one of the big problems is gossip so that's the sort of person they want and the third thing they want is to know that they're not alone because they often believe they are alone because nobody talks about it, so they don't talk about it, so they've never, you know, we've, we've worked with a school in Plymouth, where I did some talks to year 10 and year 11, and in the course of that, three or four kids just spontaneously disclosed, I mean, you know, we were concerned that they didn't get targeted by other kids, which they didn't, interestingly, but they were these kids, they were kids, but they'd never told anybody about it before, and the teachers were amazed that they didn't know, So it doesn't get talked about. So these kids want some context, which is why we set up these groups where they can talk to kids with similar experiences and um, where they don't feel so alone. So those are the three things they want. Why does it matter such a lot? And I think, you see, in all the discussion about young carers, the focus has been on the burden of caring, the physical burden and of care, the loss of childhood time, the loss of school, and the worry, inappropriate, the age inappropriate worry by the child about the parent's safety, and so on and so forth. Those are all very valid concerns which are supposed to be addressed in the Care Act. As you may know, they're not fully addressed in the Care Act because only offers an assessment, not the actual intervention. But it actually misses. What a child dealing with parental mental illness deals with. Because the problem with parental mental illness is that the the, the conversation between the child and the parent about what's really going on has often been avoided through fear. So neither of them have actually acknowledged what's happening. And that as a result of that, the child experiences, as you could imagine, when a parent becomes ill. What they experience is distance. And as you know, the way people protect themselves from mental illness is through distance. You know, they, they, they stay in, they don't go out. They avoid social situations and so on and so forth. So the child experiences the parent withdrawal. Now the child then experiences loss. So what do they do? They try and get closer.
1: Yeah.
0: What does that make the parent do? Makes them withdraw more. So then the child tries harder and harder. And at some point, quite often, what actually happens is the child feels, well, if you can't beat them, you better join them. You know, the only way I can really stay connected to my mum or dad is through agreeing with what they say about the world, about the bad world we live in, or the bad things that are happening. So, in a sense, the child's independent thinking gets tarnished and invaded. And that in some ways, in my view, is one of the most damaging things that happen to children. And it's why explanation is so important, because explanation helps the child not give up the parent, but distance themselves from the immediate impact of the parent's thinking and feeling so that they can keep their independent mind and they can look at the parent and say, well, okay, I hear what you say, mum or dad, but actually I know inside me where that's coming from. And that's really one of the key areas, I think, of intervention, which is getting absolutely missed and which we are, to some extent, the only charity really giving that priority.
1: That's great. I think that's really important for, for us to hear in terms of that dynamic within the family and trying to understand what may be missed or what may be misperceived, perhaps, by whether it be schools or other services. So, yeah, it'd be great. And I guess just for, for, for us to think a bit and hear a bit about how you feel maybe um we can start to work more proactively with these young people with that early intervention sort of I- idea in mind
0: well let me first just say the two interventions which our charity has developed um which i think we, we and we are about to research um a randomized controlled trial pilot with london borough of southwark we hope in the near in, in the new year Um, So we've what we started, as I said, these kids time groups, and honestly, they've stayed remarkably similar. The interesting thing about those is that we don't call them treatment or therapy. In fact, we say they're not therapy. They are a social and educational intervention. We have about up to 10. We have actually had up to 20 families. It gets crowded if there's five children in a family. You can imagine yeah. So um, you need a big room uh, and they come from about five o'clock until um, about 7.30, 7.45. It's two and a half hours. They're interesting groups. So we meet, we greet. Uh, what's most important about them is the role of the kids time workers who adopt a very, very different professional role to the one they're used to. It's much more collaborative. It's, it's quite challenging, but it's challenging on a sort of peer group level almost. Uh, so we meet, we then do a sort of seminar, which might be done with a flip chart. It might be done with drama. It might be done using other techniques on some aspect of mental illness. And that's with the parents and children together. And that continues, it might be for 10 minutes. It might be for three quarters of an hour. It continues as long as the children don't look bored. When, it, when they look bored, we split. And when we have the parents go to a group of parents, both those with a mental illness and their spouses, and discuss how you manage being a parent when you have a mental illness, the, the hurdles of parenthood. And the children go into another group and they play games. And then out of the games, we ask them to think about stories from the seminar. They often refuse and not often, but they say, well, we're going to think about other stories. <laughs> if they do, that's what we accept. And then we dramatize those stories. This is the, most, the quickest film that's ever been made in the world. And then we get them to film the dramas, sometimes two or three minutes. So there might be three or four dramas. And so we land up with, a, with three or four films at the end of an hour. We then have pizza, that's universal, and we the pizza are eaten with the parents and the children together, and us, we all eat together. Uh, we then ask the parents to say something about what they've been on about, uh, which is usually brief, and then we show the film that the kids made to the parents and everybody else, and then we discuss it, and then we say goodbye. Now, that sounds like that's the end of it. Of course, it is the end of it, but... Those discussions can become very, very intense sometimes. They can lead to disclosures of all sorts of things, but we don't ask for disclosures. That's totally up to them. We don't focus on particular family problems, although obviously we have to to recognise safeguarding needs and we obviously do address those. Um, But our role is generic to the families as a whole. And then we meet again a month later. Now, because of the problems of uh, access to cams or other services, sometimes families do ask us if we'll do a home visit and go down and help them with a specific thing. And we do agree sometimes in our in my group. I say in my group because there are now 15 or 17 groups in the UK. Um, And I've retired from that group anyway, Uh, but we might go and do a home visit um, or a few home visits. And I've sometimes done a bit more than a few, but there we are. Uh, and that's it. And we get extraordinary feedback from the parents. One of the most interesting things about it, I've found, is that when the parents watch the film, and sometimes what they watch is the most horrendous things, like you know, a su- an actual suicide attempt or most extraordinary things in the film, terrible bullying or something. The parents always, but always, and I've never seen this different, applaud with tremendous pleasure. And I talked to one of the parents about this. I said, weren't you a bit shocked? I said, well a bit, but you know, it was such a relief to see my kid having fun and being and finding a way to express what they've never said expressed before. And, and of course it's not their own expression individually, it's the group. So they're not actually exposed. That's another important point. So that's kids time. And then the other intervention. So now kids time, we've got, I think it's 17 in the UK, mostly in London, but we've got them in Portsmouth, Plymouth, Central Bedfordshire, um, Wirral, um, uh, Birmingham. So they're they're around the country. And we've now got, uh, I think it's, Six groups in Barcelona and um, about five or six in North Germany and that's because they came over to one of our presentations and they said we need this and they asked us to go over and train them and we've actually now set up training centers in Germany uh, because their interest was much better than the United Kingdom to be honest and their funding was much better so that's the story of kids time now that even if you had 20 in a group you can see that it touches the tiny um, tip of the iceberg so we started developing the who cares project um, now about six years ago who cares is a three module intervention for schools so it offers teacher awareness training about parental mental illness about Uh, how to recognize these kids about how to talk to them and how not to talk to them about the issues of bullying and so on and so forth it also provides a general classroom module which is often used as a sort of six lesson uh, module for year 10 and then we provide what we call package three which is a dedicated intervention available which needs to be supervised by somebody in school for the children who've been identified as having a parent with mental illness. How to think about themselves, how to think about their relationship to the illness, how to think about their peers, how to think about their parents, and so on and so forth. And I'll summarise a bit about that in just a moment. Uh, Who Cares has been more problematic because we had, the, the problem is funding. We had some schools who could fund it to start with, but as you know, the cutbacks have made this very difficult And schools who really had the flexibility often don't now. Uh, I wrote quite a piece in Thrive Global recently because Justin Greening was talking about how they were going to roll out this wonderful interventions for mental health, but actually no uh, discussion of the costs of that. And how are you going to provide a dedicated lead clinician in every school? And I estimated, I did a quick calculation that that would cost 600 million around the country. And I haven't seen anything like that figure mentioned by anybody in government. 600 million if you were going to do that job properly. Yeah. Now, we reckon we could provide who cares in a school for about 5K. Um, and in some of the schools, we've been funded to do that by specific charities. But that's what we're having to rely on, each charity funding each school which is really very cumbersome. The interesting thing about that, I would just say, is that the schools we've worked with most have said, not only has it helped with parental mental illness, it's actually helped with the overall kind of social uh, atmosphere in classes to start discussing that because it's opened up ways of thinking by young people that are normally kept taboo for fear of bullying and it's addressed that and it obviously requires the school to introduce either a young carers group or a a, 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 a dedicated copy group or a buddy system uh, or a co-counseling group of some sort and that combined does make a tremendous change in schools and it to be honest although we focus on parental mental illness we have good evidence that it actually addresses in quite a sophisticated way the mental health issues of the kids in school as well ironically i think you may disagree with this that addressing it by that route actually is more effective in some ways than addressing it head on okay so what do i say to a young person who says to me well that's um Dr. Cookley and I have got a parent with men- parental mental illness. It makes me very upset and frightened. Sometimes I get obsessive compulsive, or I get symptoms myself. What shall I do? And it, we have a number of young people who are our ambassadors now. One of whom is actually helping to run the foundation. Who's who's went? She's been with us since she was eight, and she's now a psychologist and. Um, And we've got another young person who's working in finance, who's one of our sort of cheerleaders, who's done a lot of fundraising for us. Uh, We've got another young person who's helping us write a book. Uh, We've got another young person who's now a medical student, interestingly, all of whom in our... Another young person who's an IAPT therapist, all of whom have said they couldn't have done it, that they saw their schoolwork um, um, failing they wouldn't have got there if somebody hadn't helped them deal with it so what is it that they need that's the question yeah i think the first thing that a child needs is to face the fact that there's very that their own omnipotence is dangerous that there's very strict limits on what they can actually do to help the parent and that ironically actually trying too hard to be helpful may undermine the parent rather than help them And will also undermine themselves so it's a bit like you know they say on the airplanes if you need the oxygen help yourself first before you try and help anybody else yeah and that's our main message these young people you've got to be responsible for your mind you've got to have a mind you've got to have your thinking you've got to trust your thinking you've got to accept that you'll have some resilience and you've got to draw on it so the the main message is not to be cold or rejecting but to give that priority to your own thinking and we will help you with that we'll then help you talk to your parent but not from the position of you desperately trying to fit in but the position of you being an independent person first who has to perhaps grow up too quickly We accept that then help you talk to your parent and that through that you will take charge of your own mental illness and mental health. Now, one of the particular ways in which we found young people do this is through what I'd call dissociation, through cutting off, through saying, you know, there's a whole aspect of my life that I just don't engage in. And sometimes they cut off the family. And sometimes they cut off friends and school and and so on and so forth. So part of our intervention is to help them bring those different facets of their lives together and stop being so frightened of the two interfering with each other, the two engaging with each other, to be more exact. Um, I think we would say to young people also, demand that adults don't sideline you. Get friends to help you. Get an adult who can back you. Any adult. Get an explanation. Don't give in to a to a bum explanation. Insist that the explanation actually means something to you. And go on until it makes sense. And in a way, getting people to do that, of course, has a secondary effect. It means that they somehow become their own ambassador, not just trying to save the family. And that's really important. That's the key shift that we help people do in the um in the package three and who cares the focus is a lot on helping people know and expect the sort of negative effects that a trying to accommodate to a mental illness may have on them what does it do to their own thinking and feeling how can they address that we talk about that how can they stay loving without fitting in that's a very important one mm. there's a kind of um, ethos in many families. If you don't agree with me, you don't love me. Now, we help them challenge that idea. That's great. And there's
1: certainly a lot of empowerment that sort of comes comes out of that for me in terms of help supporting those young people to almost support themselves. And like you say, to become ambassadors for themselves, which I think is a, a really important thing for us to think about and, and, you know, a really important thing for us to reflect on. So if we're okay to leave it there Alan thank you very much for your time today I do hope that listeners do look at the kids time and um, look into that and um, find out more about the the work that you do and hopefully use that to inform their approach and how they view these hidden young people almost who need that extra and as
0: I said and I'll just rub it in we think because this is some of the things that we've had feedback from young people about that talking about the impacts on them of others actually is a more acceptable route to thinking about their own mental health than directly trying to get them to disclose about their own mental health. Brilliant.
1: Alan, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you.
0: Okay. Thank you for listening. If you have found this resource useful, please consider making a charitable donation to CWMT by texting TALK18 and the amount to 70070. And to learn more about the work of the Charlie Waller Memorial Trust, please visit cwmt.org.uk.